Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 19, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Hey, my name is Rick. I'm author of The God Who Fights For You, released last year, and uh, general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, and upcoming this fall, the Jesus-Centered Daily, a 365-day devotional that had had a devotional thought, a upending question about Jesus, then a, um, uh, a experience, something you can do that's tied to the devotional thought, and um, a little zinger from Jesus, all in this compact space of each page. So, so I'm uh, so excited about the release of that Jesus Center Daily later this year. Again, we'll let you know more about that um, as we go along. Today is the 14th episode in this series we're doing called Foundations. It's really exploring foundational truths about Jesus, connected also to his mission in our lives. And uh, today's uh, podcast, the, the theme of today is more, more. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a foundational truth, does it? But you'll see where we're headed here in just a second. I just want to mention one more thing about uh, the Jesus-Centered Bible. Right now, uh, we're right now in the normal graduation time for high school seniors and college seniors, and they're missing out on this thing that you look back on your whole life and look forward to all the way up to it. They're missing out on it. And so we came up with an idea that could make it a little more special to, to make it memorable for them. We, are, we have a, a strategy for giving away a Jesus-centered Bible to the graduate in your life that makes it a keepsake forever. And that strategy is simply uh, con uh, connecting with uh, a few people that are close to that graduate and secretly asking them to suggest their favorite scripture passage and write a note uh, that goes with that suggestion and then send it to you. And out of that, you print it, uh, fold it into a bookmark, and you put that bookmark right where that scripture passage is in the Bible. And then you give that Bible to the graduate in a surprise way, in a social distancing way, of course. Uh, and then they have forever a Bible that has these special bookmarks along with a special note from the special people in their lives. So we'll put a link to this idea on our podcast page if you would like to pursue this for the graduates in your life. Uh, again, the episode you're going to be looking for is, is season five, uh, episode 19. And you just go to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, the name of our podcast, followed by the .com. So today, more. So let's go back to the beginning, um, the beginning of all things, not the beginning of today or the beginning of the pandemic. Let's go back to the beginning of all things, to the creation. And there's a, there's a, um, a, a big mystery sort of embedded in the beginning of creation that maybe you haven't seen as a mystery before but it's sitting right there. So we know by definition that God is all sufficient. We talked about this in the last podcast episode. He has no real needs. In fact, that's, that's uh, the nature of God is that he is sufficient in and of himself. 
And so why would this God, here's the mystery, why would this God who is sufficient in and of himself decide to create more than himself? He creates the heavens and the earth. And then the crown of that creation, which is Adam and Eve, or you and I, he, he creates this complex being as the crown of his creation. But why would he do that? Why would he, who is already sufficient in, in all that he is, create something more? What, what is this mentality of more in God? So the, I think the, the, the question deserves um, a, a good answer. Um, it's not just a theological question or a, um, a rhetorical question. Uh, more is central to God's heart. So I thought it would be interesting for us to explore the foundation of more and then explore um, Jesus's relationship with more. And I think it will matter in the midst of the place that we're in now, this apocalyptic place we're in now, to understand what more means in the heart of God. So uh, I was searching around YouTube to see uh, what I could find that expressed something about more. I mean, the role of more in our life. And I found this uh, interview, the guy uh, who wrote a book called How to Think Like a Millionaire. <laughs> That's what he's famous for. Uh, and, and this guy does an interview podcast show, and he posted a YouTube version of that podcast online where he is asking uh, a woman named Mary Morrissey to talk about the role of more in our life. Now, this guy's name is T. Harv Ecker, and you'll, you'll, listen, you'll hear him at the start introduce himself, and then he's going to ask Mary Morrissey this question. Just so you know who Mary Morrissey is, she's kind of a sketchy person. <laughs> she, she at one time led something like a church of 4,000 people. I don't know exactly what kind of church it was, but it was not conventional. It was a kind of a, she, she's kind of more of a spiritual leader than a church leader. And uh, she has an interesting past. But so there's some sketchy things about this interview. I'll warn you in advance. But I think there's also some interesting things that Mary Morrissey says. So let's go ahead and listen now to uh, T. Harv Ecker and Mary Morrissey and uh, uh, pay particular attention to how Mary responds to this question. Here we go. Hi, this is T. Harvecker, and I have the fabulous Mary Morrissey with me here, and I've got a question for her. Listen closely. What should you do if you feel like you're never satisfied with your life? What's your take on someone who feels greedy because they feel like they are always wanting more out of their life? For example, they want more money, better relationships, a better, better career, and they're not content with what they have now. Mary? Well, I would say first a couple of things, one of which is that if we look at nature, I mean, we could say, well, look at nature, how greedy nature is. It always wants a bigger, better tree. It always wants that blade of grass to press through cement and become a bigger blade of grass. You know, it wants to grow that grass. It wants to expand itself. But if you look at the nature of spirit, the nature that's, that's indwelling us, that's actually beat our heart, wakes us up in the morning, Spirit is ever seeking a freer, fuller, expanded expression of itself by means of itself. We're in a spiral universe, Harv. So there's an ever upward pull of becoming 
that's everywhere present, we feel it as human beings who are spiritual beings but having a human experience. We feel it ourselves, that call to the roar, that longing and the discontent with where we feel hemmed in. Challenge is that we have decades of programming that it's not okay to want, that that must make us greedy. In fact, many of us have childhood religions that have taught us that um, it's, it's actually evil to want more, or there's some really, something really wrong with us. I think that's completely erroneous. If we just look at what life is seeking to do, our, like I said, our very DNA is a spiral. That said, the question then, if, if life is seeking to express, meet more by means of me. I think often people think it's an either or. Either I'm going to say, yes, I would love a greater, I'd like more money, I'd like a better relationship, I'd like to have me work that has meaning and purpose, I'd like to be able to take my kids to Disneyland if I wanted to, or do anything I'd really love to, I'd like to give to that, that charity or that you know, work that would matter to me. But they feel hemmed and constricted by not having the more that would enable that. But that makes me greedy, it makes me ungrateful about my life, I don't agree with that. Uh, you can absolutely want more for your life and be grateful for what you have. It's a it's a yes and, not an either or. You can you can love your life today. Be grateful that when you ask your hand to move, it does move. You actually have sensors in your hand so you can touch your child's face or or pick up rose and smell it or any of the other ways that we experience the richness and fullness of being alive and at the same time. Notice that there's a longing for more in some particular areas of your life. Know that there's places where you feel constricted by having lived into settling or mediocrity and pay attention to that life force that's saying there's more for you. There's more for you. And there you have it, Mary Morrissey. So you can probably hear in the in the midst of that some kind of fuzzy edges to to uh, what she's talking about. But I think it's interesting. She she mentioned some things that made me think about this whole uh, idea of of more so the question that comes out of this then is kind of a basic one is more a good thing or a bad thing uh is is more of something always good um and is less of something always good she's making the point here obviously that all living things grow even weeds growing up through the cracks of a sidewalk want more, they want to grow more, that the, even the universe by its very nature is expanding into something more, that babies are born and grow into something more. So there is a certain thing that's happening in the embedded creation around us, which is by its very nature, a metaphor for kingdom of God truth. If we study how things work in God's creation, we learn how things work in the kingdom of God. So we have to, we have to say that more, as, it, as we observe it in nature around us and in our, our ourselves, more is something that is central to the kingdom of God. And yet, <laughs> there are, we all know of circumstances under which more is not a good thing. More money, obviously, is not always a good thing. More money sometimes is a good thing if it rescues you out of the consequences, uh, dire consequences of poverty. But then if you have too much money, we, we well know how that can corrupt and, and ruin lives. Uh, there, there's uh, many, many documented cases of people who have won the lottery, for instance, and it destroyed their lives because they suddenly have way more than they need. So more is a funny thing. Yes, more centrally is good, unless it's not. <laughs> 
I guess is another way of saying it. And if you think about what is true and untrue about what Mary Morrissey was responding to there, I think this idea that there is more at the, at the foundation of our being and therefore at the foundation of who God is, more is a central reality in both of those things. That's true. Um, it's interesting if you loop in Mary Morrissey's story, you know, I, I told you that she was being interviewed by uh, the man who wrote How to Think Like a Millionaire, which is obviously about how, how do you make more money? How do you find greater financial uh, foundation for your life? Um, and he's interviewing a woman who was pastor of this 4,000 member church, but turns out she and her husband absconded with about $20 million from that church. And they were discovered, and uh, the husband sort of took the fall for both of them. He was prosecuted. He had a two-year jail sentence, and then he was released. But they, in the process, their whole church obviously imploded, and uh, Mary Morsey had to pick up the pieces of her life and go on. But here, I think it's just ironic. She's talking about the beauty of Moore when the Moore actually destroyed part of their lives. Uh, and she ended up divorcing that husband. So more led to wreckage as well. So it's, she's, she's sort of living a, a real-time dynamic about the, both the, the beauty of more and the potential destruction of more. So let's return back to our opening question then. Why would God create something more than himself when he's already enough? Why would he do that? Um, if an, enough is enough, so why go past enough? So I think somehow the reason for this must be locked up in, uh, in uh, God's relationship with the other, the, uh, whatever is outside of himself, that the answer to this mystery has to lie in what he has created outside of himself. Somehow, the fact that he creates the heavens and the earth and then the crown of his creation, us, uh, there must be some good reason why creating us and the heavens and the earth was a good thing because God called his creation good when he was finished with it. So there must have been some good reason for more to exist. Um, and I think some of that then must have to do with something that is true about his nature. Uh, maybe you could say that it, it translates to a posture of giving to the other, that if God is love, as John tells us, then the essence of love is to give, to expand the boundaries of that love, to have more and more people experience that love. And yet, uh, by expanding the boundaries outside of himself to more and creating us as human beings, he also opened the door to great pain and suffering. So he could have been self-sufficient and at peace. Instead, he created us, <laughs> who rather quickly betrayed him and, and shattered our relationship with him and brought about great pain. And yet, if you go beyond that, if his intention in creating more than himself is to expand the boundaries of love, then there's something about those boundaries of love that is, that is possible even under the shattered nature of our relationship. Perhaps get, uh, creating those things that can choose to embrace a love relationship with him 
is by its very nature expanding the boundaries of love. That though we have a shattered relationship, we choose to return to him in an intimate relationship. And that form of love transcends the kind of love that existed before we did. So that in, in creating all of creation in us, he actually furthers and expands the practice and depth of love. So um, one thing I think we can say for sure is the answer to this mystery is locked up in whatever he created. So let's take a look now. Let's turn our attention to Jesus and, and try to understand his relationship with more because it's a complicated one. And I think we can find something about the heart of God by paying attention to the heart of Jesus. Uh, just as a reminder, the, 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 the truth that I just said is not my own. It's what Jesus told us to do. In John 14, 8 through 11, um, Jesus basically describes himself as the translation of the God we can't see. Let me just read that little passage. Uh, this comes when the, uh, Jesus is starting to tell his disciples that he's going to go away and they're confused by this. They don't know how they're going to follow him because he says, Jesus says, you're going to follow me, and, but he doesn't tell them how. And so the disciples, as they are often in this place, they are confused. So Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus replies, oh, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you've seen me do. Now, this is a momentous, gargantuan thing that Jesus is, is saying to his disciples here. He's saying to them, I am the translation of the God you can't see. So pay attention to me, and you'll know at an intimate level the God you can't see. In fact, when I hear people say things like, God is a great mystery, he's unknowable, it's in direct contradiction with what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I want you to know me so that you can know the God you can't see. God does not want to remain a mystery to you because you cannot have an intimate relationship with a mystery. He wants to be relatable, to be known, so that that intimate relationship that he that he's for is possible. So, by the way, I just heard, um, uh, I, I listened to an interview that Elvis Costello did with Bono of U2. And in the middle of this interview, Bono dropped a bomb that I just, <laughs> still is resonating inside of me. He didn't explain it, he just said it. So, I can't even remember what he was talking about, but, he, but Bono says to Elvis Costello that intimacy is the new punk rock. Intimacy is the new punk rock. And what he means by that, punk rock was the break all the rules, change the music culture, rebel, rogue, uh, stab, stab of the flag in the ground um, amongst musicians, that punk rock uh, upset the apple cart of the, of the music world. And what Bono is saying is that intimacy is like that now in our culture. I think he's totally right. I just wish I could sit down and talk to him and plumb the depths of that. Why did you say that? And what does that mean? But here, what Jesus is saying is 
intimacy is our end game, the Trinity's end game. And in order for that intimacy to be possible, um, you, I, God has to be relatable. So come to know me. So that's the reason that we slow down and pay attention to Jesus's relationship with more so that we can understand the role of more in the heart of God from the very beginning. So um, uh, if we pay attention to Jesus' attitude towards more and his practice toward more, I think we can find and discover the purpose of more in our life. So let's take a look at a few passages that where more is part of the, 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 th the theme underlying those passages. The first one is one we have focused on before in the podcast. It's from Luke 7. It's when Jesus was anointed by the sinful woman. So let me just read this, Luke 7, 36 through 50. And I want you to be thinking about two questions as I read this. What is the motivation of more in this story? And the second question, what is the outcome of more in this story? And then, well, I guess I, I'm going to throw a third question in here. What does more tell us about the heart of Jesus in this story? So what's the motivation of more? What's the outcome of more? And what does more tell us about the heart of Jesus in this story? Those three questions. Here we go. Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus told, Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Well, Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Well, that's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. And you neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only a little love. And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So here we have this charged encounter where more, I think, is threaded through all of it. So what's the motivation of more in this story? Well, first of all, the woman herself uh, anointing Jesus' feet with this very expensive perfume seems way too extravagant. In another story very similar to this, um, the disciples complain about the expense of this perfume being wasted on anointing Jesus' feet. And instead, Jesus says, it's not a waste. 
this extravagant act. I'm going to make sure people throughout history remember it. She's actually responding um, in a natural way because she sees the treasure of who I am. And so in this case, when this woman offers Jesus this extravagance of more, and it's not just the perfume, it's her tears wiping the dirt off of his feet, her tears, um, kissing his feet and anointing him, all of these things way more than the Pharisees and religious teachers are comfortable with. And yet Jesus celebrates this more. And the more here is, is uh, Jesus frames it within the context of the, uh, the, the depth of emotion and gr gratitude that comes when someone accurately understands how lost they are and how needy they are and the gratitude they have when they are found. And that's what Jesus is trying to point out with this woman and by his little parable, that when this great debt is forgiven, that the more of that great debt leads to a more love, gift of love and generosity and gratitude. So more here is an expression of the depth and magnitude of a person's gratefulness and even their appreciation for the treasure that they've been given. Jesus tells other parables that really target this whole central idea that life is about understanding the value of the treasure. And this woman's more is a reflection, uh, an accurate reflection on the more that's in front of her. And that more is Jesus. So Jesus loves this response because it's accurate. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it takes into account the depth of the treasure that she's been given. So the motivation of more in this story is gratefulness and, uh, and an understanding of the treasure. The outcome of more in this story? Well, on the surface, her sins are forgiven, but also her act of extravagance is embraced and celebrated by Jesus. She, in her own identity, in her own expression, is, is embraced and welcomed and honored and respected by Jesus. Her more is, <clears throat> is a revelation to him. He loves it. So the outcome is restoration in this woman's life, not just the forgiveness of her sins, but also the restoration of the beauty of her personality, the beauty of this act that she offers. So what does more tell us about? the heart of Jesus in this story, I think we can say uh, because he honors the more that this woman offers, um, he, the, his heart recognizes when, when we are um, deeply grateful for the rescue he's brought about in our life, but also deeply grateful for simply his beauty, that we will go beyond the pale, beyond what is seen as acceptable in our culture to uh, honor and uh, worship him, to reflect back to him his beauty. That's why this podcast is called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. The, the, the practice of paying ridiculous attention to Jesus in and of itself is an act of worship. It's, it's an honoring of the treasure that he is. And so this is what we know about the heart of Jesus that he loves that. And he loves it not because he's an egomaniac. He loves it when we honor and respect 
the nature of who he is, the treasure of who he is, in the same way that a sheep honors and respects a good shepherd. Because when the sheep honors and respects a good shepherd, that sheep is safer and more satisfied than they would be if they dishonored that good shepherd. If they said, I'm just going to go my own way. I don't respect or treasure that sh my shepherd that much. In fact, I think I have a better idea of how to lead my life than the shepherd does. And the sheep goes off and tries to live its own life, which, as we all know, that when the sheep does that, um, trouble is waiting around the corner. Danger of some kind is right there, and destruction and dismantling of their life is not far away. So it's actually good for the sheep to understand the good heart of the shepherd and therefore follow that shepherd. It's better for their life if they do. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to undergird um, in not just this woman, but he's trying to point this out to the gathered religious leaders who look down their noses at him. I thought I could uh, read one other passage that I don't think we've ever focused on in the podcast. It's from the book of Acts, um, which is, uh, you know, we, we, uh, the, the name of the podcast is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. And uh, Jesus only shows up in a couple of sporadic places in the book of Acts because, of course, it's the record of the church of, church of Jesus after he ascends to heaven. But there's this strange story in Acts chapter 10 that does involve Jesus. And maybe you've never seen it this way before, but we're going to explore it. And then we'll ask the same three questions again. So this is a pretty hefty passage from Acts 10. So buckle in. It's Acts 10, 1 through 36. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. But one afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. Well, as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius's messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry, but while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Well, the same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? And just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? And they said, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. 
He's a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. And the next day he went with them, accompanied by some of, his brother, some of the brothers from Joppa. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. Peter told them, you know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. And Cornelius replied, four days ago, I was praying in my house about this same time, three o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. And he told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying in the home of Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. And then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. There you have it. Strange, epic story involving Cornelius, a, a Roman army officer, and Peter, and, and the Cornelius' friends and family. And this strange trance-like vision that Peter has on the roof of the house in Joppa, where this sheet is let down and all forms of animals that he's not supposed to be killing and eating. And the voice of Jesus telling him, kill and eat. And uh, so what's the motivation of more in this story? So here we see the, uh, Peter, who is up until this point, believing that the good news, the message that the Messiah, Jesus, has come to rescue and to gather his lost sheep back into his fold, that that message up until this point, as far as Peter's concerned, is just for the Jews, just for those who've been waiting for this Messiah, not for the Gentiles, the pagans. And so, therefore, Peter isn't really reaching out to the Gentiles at this point. He's, his focus is wholly on those within the confines of the Jewish faith. And here, then, Jesus has, I, I, uh, Peter has this vision simultaneous to Cornelius being told by God to send two men to find his servant, Peter. So uh, one thing you have to uh, just pause here for just a second. Wow. So following the specific guidance of Jesus was a normal, natural thing for these disciples and even for, these, for this pagan Roman army officer. Hearing the voice of Jesus and following the voice of Jesus was a normal part of everyday life. Just a little sidelight there. So the motivation of more in this story? Well, uh, the obvious example here is to expand the boundaries of those who God wants to rescue, those who Jesus wants us to include and go after. That, that whoever the other is, even for us right now in our life, the, the, the person or the strata of humanity that we think, uh, well, it's not for them. Well, actually, Jesus is saying, yes, it is. The more of my heart wants to expand rescue and relationship to everyone. And what's the outcome? 
of more in this story? Well, the outcome is a huge shift that, has, that carries down even to this moment, this very day. And the shift is that this message isn't just for some people, it's for all people. It's for anyone. It kind of harkens back a little bit to the first story that we read, where this woman who was impure and unacceptable to be in polite society um, is the one that Jesus honors within that society. This expansion of who his love is for and who his rescue is for, this more um, gathers in more people, not because of their ethnicity, not because of their pre-qualifications, but just simply because they believe. So in the first place, Cornelius is honored by God because uh, of the, his prayers and his gifts to the poor and the way he lives his life. He's honored by God because his heart already is worshiping God, but he just doesn't know the name of the God that he's worshiping. And Jesus says, I think I can fix that problem. I'm going to bring my, my buddy Peter to tell him the good news of who I am so that Cornelius can now attach a name and a specific personality to, to his worship, to his generous heart. And so the, the more here is the generous heart of Jesus expanding the boundaries of who's acceptable and who he's pursuing and um, what he thinks about the hearts of those who don't yet know how to name him that he wants them to be able to name him and put a name with a face, I guess is a, is a way of saying it. So what do we learn about the heart of Jesus in the story? We learn that his heart is just as extravagant as Cornelius's generosity and just as extravagant as the quote unquote sinful woman's generosity with her perfume and her kissing and her tears. You cannot out extravagant the heart of Jesus. Um, in fact, when you, th when you start to believe that Jesus's love is restricted, you're automatically in a danger zone because Jesus's love is broad, broader and deeper than we know. Does it mean that um, it doesn't matter our response to that broadened invitation? No, it does matter. He will not force us to be in relationship any more than he forced Cornelius to accept him. Cornelius responded to an invitation and then acted on it. And that's what the generosity of Jesus is offering us and everyone, an invitation that we can act on. So that's, that's really the, the, the beautiful underlying motivation of more in these stories. Um, so there you have it, gang. Um, more is central to the heart of Jesus because love is central to the nature of Jesus. And love always wants to expand and invite. Love won't force, um, but love will invite. And it will expand the boundaries of that invitation to whoever. So if you're sitting there today thinking, yeah, but I'm not sure if more really extends to me. And you have your reasons. Um, you can tick them off in your head very easily. Well. Jesus wants to say to you today, my more is for you too. And all that it requires is that you respond to my invitation, that you get past the arrogance of your shame and come to me as the woman did, as Cornelius did. 
the the first step on the path to more with Jesus is humility. It's an honest, even brutal self-assessment that I need you. I need the more you have. And a posture then of responding to his, to his in humility. That's it. Um, it's as childlike as that is, as what I've just said. All right, gang. Uh, that's it for episode 19 of season five. Hey, if you, if you want to uh, take a look at this interview with Mary Morrissey that you listened to before, you can see what this gal looks like if you want to. We'll put a link to that interview on our website along with a link to our Jesus-centered Bible idea. If you want to honor and bless a graduate in your life, we'll put a link to that there again. So again, you're looking for paying ridiculous attention to Jesus put a .com on the end of it and you've got our website, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. You'll be looking for season five, episode 19. And remember, if you want to make sure you don't miss this podcast, subscribe to us on Google play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll make sure it'll show up in your, in your inbox every week. Gang, we'll see you again next week for episode 20. 